We'll continue uh, our series that we've been in uh, on the Lord's Prayer, and today we'll be exploring uh, that clause, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're going to do that through the lens of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. Uh, This reading comes from Luke 4. Jesus returned from the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterwards Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, Since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread. Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said, I'll give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil brought him into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point on the temple. He said, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus answered, it's been said, don't test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. Uh, Pray with me. Uh, Father, we pray that you open our eyes. um, Open our eyes this morning uh, to your word and to your will. um, That your kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven uh, Lord, give us uh, what, what those things that we we sung for. We might not have even known that we were praying, but uh, St. Augustine says when you sing, you pray twice. So give us that protection, um, that assurance and trust in your steadfastness. And Lord, this morning we pray for, for that rest. Lord, we thank you uh, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the myth goes that this young musician went down to the crossroads to make a deal. Do you guys know this story, this Robert Johnson story? He grew up in the Mississippi Delta in the early 20th century, and all he wanted to do was play music and entertain audiences like his role model, this guy named Sun House. And Sun House was, was quoted as saying, like, Robert Johnson would come around and he'd just play constantly and he would just torture people with how bad of a guitar player and singer he was. But then, and again, this is a story, Robert Johnson leaves for six months. They said, they said he, went, he went up north somewhere and he came back six months later and he was a virtuoso. So they had to make a story up to figure out how this worked. The only possible answer must have been that he made a deal with the devil he couldn't have been practicing for six months or whatever, right? He sold his soul for his musical world. It's a deal that if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that neatly cut and dry or as repulsive as we might hope? 
Johnson only recorded a few songs and he died less than a year after he like kind of returned and he was 27 and there's all these stories about that even like uh, most most people say he he got killed by a jealous boyfriend, right? Like because now he could play music, so he was also very popular uh, with the ladies. Robert Johnson's renown lives on. Like he's influenced so much music, so much American music. Everyone from Led Zeppelin and Eric Clapton and Fleetwood Mac to our Nobel laureate, Bob Dylan. This is what Dylan said about Robert Johnson's music, and he only had a handful of songs recorded. But Bob Dylan said, if I hadn't heard the Robert Johnson record when I did, there probably would have been hundreds of lines of mine that would have been shut down. I wouldn't have felt free enough or appraised enough to write. It seems the devil was looking to make a deal with Robert Johnson, and that deal paid off for many, many people. I also can't get a line out of my head as I've been thinking this week about temptation, about the evil one. A line from Bob Dylan's son, uh, this guy named Jacob Dylan, and you might remember the wallflowers. Does anyone like the wallflowers? I love the wallflowers, okay? Um, But he also has a couple of really great solo records, and he's got this song on one that's called Evil is Alive and Well. He says, it doesn't always have a shape. It almost rarely does it ever even have a name. It might have a pitchfork or it might have a tail, but evil is alive and well. And I think he hones in on how shape-shifting evil is. We don't always recognize it, and it doesn't always broadcast itself. These songs and these stories, the Robert Johnson and, and Jacob Dylan song, they should give us a greater imagination for how temptation and evil actually works, right? There's, there's a logic to it and a personality. How implicit and how vulnerable we are to these deals. Evil isn't so easy to see. So how are we supposed to resist Evil rarely plays by the rules or even wears a different jersey so we know what team we're playing on and we know, like, don't score in that goal, score in that goal. That'd be really nice if, if that happened that way. Sometimes when we assume we're opposing evil, we're, we're playing right into it. We're willing participants in the very thing that we're hoping to oppose. It's not hard to see this pattern play out before our eyes. Maybe some of you have been keen to that uh, sort of jiu-jitsu in the last couple weeks or, or years. This outraged minority taking the first chance to wrestle control from an unempathetic moral majority, right? Like that's kind of the story and that story played exactly oppositely about 20 years ago. The end result is a divided and decimated people, an exhausted people cast into the wilderness of our own making. (laughs) So we read this wilderness story, this temptation narrative of Jesus, and and the first thing I I had to ask is, does God lead us into temptation? That's Jesus' prayer, lead us not into temptation. And I, I, I think the answer is no. I think if we pay more close attention to to the way scripture tells the story in various times and places with God's people is that God definitely can lead 
his people can lead his person in Jesus into the wilderness. At the beginning of that Luke narrative, it says the spirit, after, after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and was full of the spirit, that same spirit led him into the wilderness. I think this happens quite often. That wilderness is a particularly thick place for temptation to happen. We're led to the wilderness by our own sin or disobedience or by the sin and oppression, fear and violence of some sort of captor of Egypt. God's people are led into the wilderness of Babylon, into the wilderness. As we pray, lead us not into temptation, especially in this time of fear and exile. We have to be aware of the forms of temptation, uh, the, the forms that temptation takes and the one tempting us. We enter into Jesus' wilderness wanderings in Luke's gospel. After Jesus' Jordan baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the divine human who was without sin, we have to remember Jesus was baptized, and baptism is a, is a washing, it's a cleansing, it's a, it's a death, and then it's a resurrection. But Jesus was baptized as the one without sin, cleansed and forgiven on our behalf. That deliverer gets soaked in the waters which remind God's people of that parted Red Sea where they were delivered out of, out of Pharaoh's bondage, out of, it was released from captivity. So after this happens, after Jesus' Jordan baptism from John the Baptist, in short, it's on after this. Like, it's begun. His ministry and his kingdom has started. Or is it? Like, or does it? Instead, he, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus' next move is not to rush towards the temple and to turn over tables. That does happen. Um, it's not even to, to rush towards, towards the halls of power and rip down all the graven images of people who want to be worshipped like gods. No, Jesus leaves the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. It seems that the Messiah was going to do some pretty deep soul work during the prince of the ruler of the powers of the heirs kind of lame duck period, right? Like, the kingdom was starting, but that, that Satan was still in power. On a side note about the devil, some of us grew up with like more or less comfort with the idea of a personal evil, an accuser waiting to pounce. You prayed like this. Uh, there was a devil waiting at the crossroads to make a deal. Others of us have a much easier time wrapping our heads around systems that perpetuate and reinforce violence and, and coercion that draft us into their service and enlist us into like dehumanizing practices. I have news for you, it's probably not either or, it's probably a both and thing when it comes to evil. See, evil knows exactly when to incarnate and when to kind of float right above the surface. It's tricky like that. But we so often personalize and depersonalize evil and sin at exactly the wrong times. It makes us feel good to be able to point to someone and be like, that's the evil one, that is evil incarnate without dealing with bigger systems that you could kind of plug anyone in and they would become that evil one. <laughs> systems that terrorize us. 
it, it reminds me of this like war on terror that we have that we think if we can just hunt down this guy <laughs> and it's always a guy um it would be over <laughs> but then we get that guy and it's not over we we still are terrorized <laughs> or that somehow we uh, the other myth is that somehow we could just reform institutional sin and hate without having to deal with the actual people that plug into those things, without having to deal with ourselves as we unwittingly participate in these systems. I think, I think that, I think again, this, I'm trying to be so, um, like, hopeful. <laughs> and so I think if this whole election season of the last 18 months has given us any gift, it's that it shows us these things, like played out, and, and not, not from exclusively one side or the other. Like, this is the narrative, like, Trump voters in West Virginia and Bernie supporters in California and Occupy Wall Street activists in New York and Black Lives Matter activists in Missouri, they all agree that the system is rigged. That's one thing that we've learned from this. <laughs> How can all of those things be rigged? Like, that's the one thing we agree, that there is this, this real sense that evil is shape-shifting and, and drafts us into its service. There's a real sense in which the devil understands how to reach across the aisle and make deals with people and systems to make it on earth as it is in hell much better than we understand how to make it on earth as it is in heaven, you know? There's a real sense that in these in-between times that we live, that evil is alive and well. There's also a great sense in which the devil's efforts split us from God's self, from God's mission, from God's people, split us up. You know, like um, Diablo, like the, the Spanish for devil, and the root of that is, um, has to do with, with the devil being the great splitter, like, the, the, that's what that word means, a divider. And, and there's a real sense that, that the devil's presence signals actually God's presence and the presence of the kingdom, too. There's a recent author that wrote a book called Reviving Old Scratch about these things, and he said, when you lose track of the devil, you lose track of Jesus and the kingdom of God because they're so often warring right under our nose. So we look at these temptations of Jesus. That first temptation. I love it. It's, it's maybe the most understated and obvious description, maybe in the whole Bible. And we're told that Jesus fasts for 40 days and doesn't eat anything. And it says Jesus was hungry, right? Like, th that's a big, that, that seems obvious, but that's a big deal. Because that, that shows us how human Jesus was. Jesus was hungry. I wonder why, <laughs> But embedded in this, in this basic, like, primal human need to eat, that's, that's that first temptation of the devil. He says, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Feed yourself. Do something good. Do something necessary. This temptation seems logical, right? If indeed you are connected with the source of life, the giver of every good gift, gift, the fountain of abundance, by all means, you shouldn't be starving, it seems to be what the devil's saying. Imagine if Jesus had taken him up on this. Like, it seems like the inaugural address, like, this is Luke 4, if we remember well, 
Uh, and if you flip over like one page in Luke 4, the next thing we get from Jesus is his inaugural address where he lifts uh, Isaiah 61, which we know because that's like the Oaks of Righteousness thing, right? But before that, he says that I've been anointed by the Spirit to preach good news, to bind the brokenhearted, to, to proclaim release from captivity and jubilee. Those all things. But it, I think if Jesus had, had made that bread out of that rock, we might have we just skipped over that stuff. We might have got the Isaiah 55 vision, the come to the table, come without money, come and buy, come and eat if you're hungry. It might have just been pure feasting. But Jesus resists the temptation. He resists the temptation to use God to do good things. To use God to do good things. Even the most basic and necessary thing. This is kind of like that, uh, if you're a parent, that air mask warning when you fly on a plane and they say, you know, put the, uh, put the mask on yourself before you try to help your kids. And put the, like, we wouldn't fault Jesus for feeding himself so that he could feed others, but Jesus resists that temptation, and that is not advice for the next time you guys fly. But, but, but that's the sort of, the sort of logic, the, the sort of, of teeth we start to get here where, where we really wouldn't have blamed Jesus to fall prey to this. But Jesus turns the devil down cold on his offer to solve his own hunger and to solve world hunger, right? We assume that if Jesus could turn anything into bread, no one would ever be hungry again, right? This is like Jesus spinning straw into gold. Jesus refuses to use the God who he and we should only enjoy and trust. Because if you can do these magic tricks, you don't need to trust very well. He replies, man should not live on bread alone. The continuation of that scripture quotation from Deuteronomy 8 is, of course, but on every breath that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Jesus won't do the selfish thing. Jesus won't even do the smart thing or the expedient thing. Jesus refuses to do good things in the wrong way. Are we willing to see these sorts of temptations in our own lives and suffer the consequences of relying on God rather than giving in? Are we willing to do without things that aren't done in the right way? I mean, this is, this is doing without good food that you can't afford. So you buy bad food that's done in ways that hurt other people or hurt the rest of God's creation. Are, are you willing to do without clothes that were made on the backs of, of, of bad uh, practices? Are we willing to respond to the word and the call of God rather than what seems to be the best thing on paper? Are we willing to do that even if that thing will meet very real needs? <laughs> the second temptation that Jesus faces is the temptation to be powerful. To take power from wherever he can get it. Like I think we can contextualize this each into our own lives, whatever power means for us. The devil says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
Jesus's response illuminates. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It seems the devil is very pleased to separate church and state here. He says, you know, hey, Jesus, you take the big desk and I'll stay back here behind the scenes. Just make sure you offer your prayers and your tributes and your tithes and your worship to me and we got a deal. Jesus sees through this arrangement. I, I think he sees through this arrangement because Jesus knows we become like what we worship. Like that's, that's what the Psalms say over and over. They say, <laughs> the psalmist says, we're worshiping the true living God. All of the gods of the nations are idols, like idols that can't talk, though they have eyes drawn, uh, mouth drawn on them, can't see, though they have eyes drawn on them, can't do anything. They're so feeble, and if you worship those things, you will become feeble like those things. Jesus knew that if he took Satan up on this arrangement, again, it would work, but he would also deteriorate the image of God in him. That this sort of reign and rule, this sort of kingdom, would be unrecognizable over time from the source and giver of his authority. This is this is the story sung by the early church in that Christ hymn in Philippians 2. It says, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus doesn't only, doesn't only leave the devil's deal to grab at authority, but he, he wouldn't even do that for his father. He wouldn't take something that wasn't his from his own dad. He simply knows who he is. He knows whose he is. That's the only anti antidote from this, these sort of power plays is to know who and whose you are. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In that third temptation, Jesus seems a little, or Satan actually seems a little deterred by the way Jesus keeps using scripture. Like, like, like this is like arguing with a fundamentalist, right? Like, like they're always going to whip out the perfect scripture verse, right? But it seems that, that Satan has maybe underestimated a little bit the imagination that's been formed around God's vision for the world spoken through his holy word in Jesus. So he changes tact. After all, the devil knows as anyone that the medium is the message, right? So he takes on a medium that Jesus seems to value. He starts speaking scripture to Jesus. This is not going to go well. Like, at the, at the outset, you, you're just like, what are you thinking, man? But like the serpent in the garden, he uses God's vocabulary in his own way. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against the stone. There's so much irony in there. That could be a whole nother sermon on that quotation. He's seen how disciplined Jesus is. That Jesus refuses to take the bait on the small things, but plenty of people can refuse to take those, that bait. 
Plenty of us can muster up the kind of strength for self-control or self-denial. Jesus refused the allure of the throne because maybe Jesus never saw himself as particularly presidential, right? But now the devil throws his fastball at Jesus, right? He tempts Jesus to be spectacular, to, be, to dazzle, to, to amaze. The temptation is not to win the lottery, or it's not to win the election, but it's to win the admiration and respect of others so that people can see Jesus and be like, oh, that is who you are. You're who you say you are. His offer, Satan's offer, is essentially a challenge that Jesus would just go ahead and confirm his identity. It, it, go on your own time this, this week and read through Mark's gospel and just be completely maddened by the fact that Mark will not give up this secret that Jesus in Mark's gospel will not give up the secret of who he is. He'll go heal someone, and they'll be like, don't tell anyone, because they can't handle it right now, right? Where we'd, we'd be like, press send on all the social media and hope for viral, you know? But not in Mark's gospel, not in Jesus' life. Je- Jesus would rather um, let God be God rather than forcing that issue, rather than uh, thinking that says, if God is God, then, then surely he'll save me. Surely I can press that button and God will respond. If Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who would bring about a kingdom of justice and shalom and healing and renewal, surely no stumble would derail God's purposes. If resurrection and new creation is the end game anyways, why not now? Why not us with that? Why not force God's hand to do something good? Because God in his providence would not take such a shortcut. Would never take a shortcut like that. God would never free God's self from entering into the very depth of suffering and compassion in this world. God knew that there'd be no spectacular fix. (laughs) That it wouldn't be magic. That you couldn't wave a wand at it. That resurrection and new creation could never bypass Calvary's cross. That the victory of Easter Sunday must be paired with the agony of Good Friday and the, the total despair of Holy Saturday. There's a, that gap in between Good Friday, where we sing amazing songs, and Easter Sunday, where we sing amazing songs, and then there's Saturday, and there's silence. That the future for someone in the center of God's will is not safety, but like, most likely harm. <laughs> We've been told that lie, right? That the center of God's will is the safest place to be. False. <laughs> The center of God's will is a place of harm and struggle and suffering and death because that's where Jesus is. So look at Jesus. There's no easy button. There's no shortcut. There's only the life and the way of Jesus. So Jesus replies, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Even that, Jesus is perhaps the most ironic person ever, right? Because the crux and the irony is that word, um, pyrazo, (laughs) that's been the whole point of the story, test. 
testing, temptation. When scholars try to translate that word, when God does it, it means test. When Satan does it, it means tempt. Same word. But Jesus knows who that word belongs to. (laughs) That God is the tester. We don't test. That testing out of God's hands becomes just a temptation. And God's God's not willing to do that. That we'll be graded on what we do in the wilderness. Not at home, not in ideal circumstances, but when we're hungry, when there doesn't seem to be enough, when it seems like we're in exile and there's no future. That we'll feel more acutely what's always been true all along, our exile, our, our homelessness, our in-betweenness. These songs that we've sung today sound so much more real, this already not yet, but we can't force that not yet into existence. We can't settle for the expediency of getting good things done in less than the best ways. We can't dazzle or distract or grab at power. We can just watch and wait. (laughs) We can pray. (laughs) We can discern where God is working in quiet, unassuming ways. We can seek the good of the city in which we're exiled. We preached on that a few weeks ago from Jeremiah 29. We can even pray for our rulers and authorities. So we muster up the words to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In some sense, that prayer, lead us not into temptation, is such a dead meat prayer, right? Like, that's like the most pitiful prayer to, to ask God not to make you do hard things, <laughs> right? Um, I think to ask, God, to ask God not to be led into temptation is just to kind of wave the white flag of humility, of self-awareness, that we're not up to that. It's not going to work. We're not going to succeed. It's to wave that white flag and then it's to join on to Christ's faithfulness, Christ's steadfastness in our place. Hebrews 4 tells us we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who is tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. We pray not to encounter temptation because we can't handle it, and that's okay. That's the prayer Jesus gives us. But we're also given God's words. God's words in Scripture. God's word in Christ. Even Jesus, even Jesus, the word made flesh, did not depend on his own words to stand up to the temptations of the accuser. He used God's. For all the ways that Jesus' victory over and passing through the devil's tests are kind of a one-off thing. They're unrepeatable. We needn't go through them because Jesus did that for us, that they're a decisive victory. We're also given, we're still given his tools, right? We're given a glimpse and a clue. We're given access to combat these kind of tricks in small ways in our lives. Namely, the word of God interpreted to us by God's spirit. I think that was maybe the most 
kind of disappointing stat post-election was that um, white evangelicals, like people of the word, voted for someone who it seems to like kind of viscerally disalign with God's word. Like I think both candidates disalign with God's word, don't get me wrong, in, in, in very distinct in real ways, but viscerally. <laughs> in the words of Martin Luther, all the cunning of the devil is exercised in trying to tear us away from God's word. Like when we get distracted and we, we either don't remember it or we aren't in it, that's when these temptations come faster and harder. That's when we're kind of disarmed of, of our ability to stand up. But I want to I challenge you now. And I'm joined in this challenge. So this is not a challenge from outside of you. This is a challenge from within you in this coming season. I want to challenge you to, to lean on that second half of that Lord's Prayer clause. Deliver us from evil. This is our cry. <laughs> Save us is what it's saying. After all, isn't that really the basic definition of what a Christian is? Is someone who says, God, save me. <laughs> save us. Save us from sin and evil. Lead us out of trial and temptation. Pray that desperate prayer, but don't individualize it. So that, that's part of the challenge. Keep it communal. Don't say, save me. Say, keep saying, save us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us. Keep praying. Deliver us. Save us. Resist that temptation to isolate and to erect walls. You are not allowed to disassociate yourself from the rest of Christ's body. That's literally cutting off a limb to spite yourself, right? Even if you didn't give in to one or two of these temptations this time around, the fact that so many of us did means that you and I failed, right? That we fell prey to some of these old tricks together. The temptation to get things done in the wrong ways. By distancing ourselves from others, by explaining their feelings and their fears to them and discounting them by shaming them or doing that in implicit or explicit ways, by, by making them abstract rather than real. We've fallen prey to the temptation to rule <laughs> or at least be comfortable with a status quo that was never meant to be that hospitable to the kingdom of God anyways. We've succumbed to the temptation to settle for flashy kind of identity markers. <laughs> vocabulary that signals that we get it or that we're on the right side of history. These are all superficial shortcuts towards beloved community. Rather than that slow, small, surprising growth, that patient ferment of God's kingdom. So we cry, forgive us. We cry, save us. We cry, lead us not into temptation. We cry, deliver us from evil. I don't just want to give you guys a challenge, though. I want to give you guys some tools. Um, so on the entry table, uh, there's a blue card first, and 
these got printed out for last week at the Gathering Church, and and um, it's, it's slightly adapted from something I found online. But um, these are these are confessions for us, um, but they're also pledges. So there there's there's a, a laying down and a picking up. Um, and those came before the election. I think they're still so, so appropriate for this next season. Um, if, 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 if you don't have words to pray, there's a good start. And those should not be exhaustive words. There should be an ellipsis at the end of those. Um, but also, there's another card on that table, and, and this is kind of this hexagon of identity. That, that's a terrible name. We need a wordsmith for something. But... Um, if you have a better name, please, by all means. But as we're coming to the close of our series this fall in the Lord's Prayer, sometimes it's good to be reminded of, first of God's identities. Each of these clauses are, are kind of spoken of. Thy kingdom come, um, well, our Heavenly Father, thy kingdom come, give us this day, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, deliver us but also our own identity in light of who God is. And, and this is such a circular thing. If you get in and start praying with this card, you'll move on to the next thing, and you'll circle right back around to where you started, and that's not a bad place to be. Sometimes, it, sometimes particular uh, facets of this just come to, to so much greater relief, and we, we just need them even more. Maybe right now you need to know that because God is a protector, that you are a protected one that you're safe and you're secure despite the waves and the bluster and the threats and the uncertainty. These call us to grow into the image of God to which we're created because of who God is, that's who we are. But it's also who, if we're being shaped into God's image by his spirit, if we're being remade into that image, it also makes us some of those things that God is. It makes us some of those things for others. It, it makes us, you know, protectors for others. It, it helps us lead in ways that, that God leads. It helps us forgive kind of reflexively, forgive as we've been forgiven. So I, I offer that to you hopefully as a tool, as a gift, um, as something to keep this prayer renewed and refreshed, to keep kind of each component of, the, of it alive and, and lively in your hopes and in your prayer life. You guys pray with me. Father, we thank you that you're first our Father who takes good care of us um, better than any dad that we've known, uh, even the best ones in our midst here. That you, you hope the best for us and you take amazing care of us. Lord, we thank you that you're a king, especially in times like this where, where we, we get completely worked up over um, these earthly kings. Um, we, we thank you that your reign and rule will not be deterred by uh, whatever kind of detour or disruption. Father, we thank you that you're so generous you give us everything we need, more than what we need. We thank you that you're so generous with your own forgiveness. That you've, through 
through Christ allowed us to walk back our trespasses, the places where we've gone, where we have no business. Lord, help us this week pray that dead meat prayer of lead us not into temptation because we can't handle it. We can't help ourselves. Save us. Save us from the evil one. Save us from, from all evil. Take us out of that frame and, and remake us into citizens of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord.